Good morning, church. Happy New Year to you, to you personally, to your families, and may God bless our church in this new year. It's a pleasure to be here to share the Word of God with you. It's a privilege and a joy for me, and I invite you to pray with me as we move and look into the very end of our book, the end of Bible. Father, we praise you this morning being able to meet and see one another and be able to worship you together with families and individuals with whom we don't normally live and be able to remember your suffering through, who, through which we have been cured and on the way to heaven. And Father, as we look at this text, I pray, Lord, that you would um, speak to our hearts, our minds, remind us the purpose and our final destination that we would be truly looking forward to it and uh, dwelling on it, thinking on it, and acting on it. Father, we pray that you would bless me and bless our congregation and speak to all of us by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, <clears throat> brothers and sisters, it is a new year, January 3rd, and... Um, Many of you have been looking forward to this year. Uh, the whole world, I think, is looking, was looking forward to 2021. I was just looking at the headlines at the end of the year, and um, everyone reflecting upon the last year, upon all the pains and disorder, instability, evil, um, they hope for the best. So they hope for the next year to bring them joy and comfort and, uh, and ease. Let me just read you a couple of examples of these headlines. The first one says, anticipating a better year in 2021. Another one says, let's make 2021 a better year than 2020. Another one is here, it's up to us all to make 2021 a better year. This one is interesting. Dear 2021, you can be better. And we believe you will be. Uh, this last one says, we went through hell in 2020 and came out stronger. Why 2021 will be better. Um, hope. Hope is there in every human being. But we understand that 2021 might not be better. It might be worse. It could get worse. A quick change in politics. A uh, quick change in culture, uh, change in wars, um, could be another virus, um, any kind of revolution can change things very, very quickly and to the worst. And yet we look forward to something that is more greater, infinitely better, and something that is guaranteed, that we don't need to wonder whether it will happen or not. It will happen. It is prepared for us. And we as Christians, we look forward to heaven. When we look back into the history of Christianity, especially in the early church, we have evidence that Christians, especially during difficult times, they were truly looking forward to heaven. They were not looking forward to the next year or to the next president or the next political party. They were looking toward heaven. There's evidence that even within Roman catacombs, that within, from the first and second centuries, 
they would look inside and they would see these landscapes drawn on the walls of children playing, people feasting, um, just heaven being joyous place. At the same time, there were these inscriptions on the tombs of the dead. And this one is an example of such where it says, in Christ, Alexander is not dead, but lives. One who lives with God, he was taken up into his eternal home. A church father, Cyprian, from the third century said this, Let us greet the day which assigns each of us to his own home, which snatches us from the place and sets us free from the snares of the world and restores us to paradise and the kingdom. The early church, they understood, and the more difficult times that there were in the history of Christianity, the more people look into the real home, into the real improvement, real joyful place where they will be, which is guaranteed. We understand that it is not baseless. It is based on the scripture. Even in the New Testament, Old Testament and the New Testament, the writers were looking forward to heaven. Let me just give you a couple of examples. I remember Paul when he was imprisoned in Philippi, on house arrest, quarantine, so to speak. He was writing, not hoping to be released so that he could finally get a little life and go to a restaurant, right? He was looking into heaven, which is the true happy place. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm hard pressed from both directions. On the one side, I want to die and be with Christ. On the other side, I want to stay here and help you and serve you for your faith and your joy. In 2 Corinthians, you remember he says this in chapter 5, while we're at home, speaking of the earthly home, the body, and continue, we're absent from the Lord. We prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Remember Peter writing to scattered Christians because of the persecution, he says, reminded them of the inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We believers, we believe that. We understand, we read from the scripture, we understand that there is heaven. There is a joyful place that there will be no pain. There will only be joy, but for whatever reason, we don't meditate, we don't dwell on it, and it doesn't move us to certain actions. We are occupied with the benefits and worries of this world too much. And therefore, my desire is to take you to the scripture, to the place where it's, it is a reminder for us, where are we going? To the very last two chapters of the Bible, to tell you that there is a place that we will call home. And it is joyful. It is pain-free. It has no sorrow. It has no wars, no famine, no hunger. Only satisfaction in our God and satisfaction of what he gives us. I want to remind you overall of the background. We're not going to go into detail of the book of Revelation. But we are going to the second, last two chapters of the book. The book of Revelation was written by John. John was on the island of Patmos. He was exiled there for the word, for his testimony of Jesus Christ. 
And he was serving time, so to speak, probably spending his last moments there. At the same time, the church was not, it was experiencing some persecution under the Roman emperor Domitian. This was year 90-95. And John himself, while being arrested, was sent away and he receives this revelation from Jesus Christ of Jesus Christ and the end times that are to come. And in the midst of how the church is doing, as he writes to this church, he ends this letter with the glorious end, the glorious hope of final redemption and transfer to this eternal state. We understand in preceding, I will take you to Revelations chapter 21 as our passage today. But preceding, how did we get here, uh, even through this book, we understand that the church has been raptured anywhere between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Great tribulation comes upon this earth, and the wrath of God is just poured over this earth. And all the people, and all the rebels, and all the unbelievers get to be suffering through this time. It is a horrible time that we read between chapters 4 or 6, all the way to chapter 18. And in chapter 19, we read this marriage of the Lamb and the church that happens in the heavens. After that, at the end of chapter 19, Jesus Christ comes down to earth, and he takes care of business. He immediately throws the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire, and he begins to reign during his millennial kingdom for a thousand years, which we read about in chapter 20. In the last part of chapter 20, we read about the judgment, the great white throne to which every unbeliever comes, and all the books are opened, and they're judged for all of their deeds that they have committed. And all of the unbelievers, they're thrown into the lake of fire along with Satan. And then comes the glorious time of the eternal kingdom and home for all the believers of all times in this new heaven and earth about which chapter 21 and part of chapter 22 speak about. So I ask you to open your Bibles to chapter 21 and we will read beginning with verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, 
and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in a lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Go with me to chapter 22, and I want to read ver chap uh, verses 1 through 7. This is uh, the passage that I wanted to Kirill to, to read, but gave him the wrong numbers. 22 instead of 2, but God is sovereign. Someone needed to hear that. Check yourself if you lost the first love for Jesus Christ. Read with me Revelation 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for, for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp. Nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Well, we are coming to our passage, and our passage is going to be from Jephthah, chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. And if you can come away with this main point of the sermon today, I would say it's this, that God has prepared for us a glorious home where he will live among us, supplying our every need, letting us enjoy him forever. God prepared us a home, the new heaven and the new earth, which, in which he will live with us, supplying our every need and letting us enjoy him forever and ever. The way John describes the heaven and the new earth and the new heaven, I would break it down into three aspects. The first one would be the new dwelling place. When we talk about home, it doesn't just involve a dwelling place. It is more than that. But the first one would be a new dwelling place. The second one would be a new relationship. And the third one is the new experience. Take a look with me with the verse of the verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. This is a very, very important part in the history of humanity and the history of the universe. Why? Because it says that the old earth, the earth that we're on, is going to flee. Look with me in verse 11 of chapter 20. This is where the great white throne is. And then it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. You may ask, well, what does that mean, it fled away? Where did it go? 
And there are many passages in the New Testament, several passages, that speak of the sort of disappearance or destruction of this earth and how it will take place. And one of those very prominent passages, if you go back just a few pages to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, a very important passage. We'll read a few verses from here. And in verse 10, it says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And this is a very good question. How is it going to be burned up? Is the entire globe and the entire universe is going to get burnt up? Or is it the entire globe is just going to burn and become a piece of charcoal and be fled away? How is it going to be? And there are several opinions about it. Some people would say the entire universe is going to be gone. And these are very respected men. And they look at specifically at the verse 11 of chapter 20, and they say, it is nothing. Nothing is going to stay. Every element is going to be gone. Another pass, and other people to which I'm leaning to this theory that it is primarily the surface of the earth is going to just burn away and the new creation is going to be happening on this globe. Now, let me give you some explanation why I believe it would be this way. Um, even looking at the same ch- passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, when God, when Peter compares what will take place with the earth as it's going to burn and how it's going to be destroyed. Right before that, in verse 5, he speaks of the earth prior to the flood. He says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Verse 6, through which the world at the time was destroyed. Same term, destroyed, being flooded by water. Now we understand what has happened during the flood. It was a massive global catastrophe where the depths of the earth opened up and water just gushed and changed the entire surface of the earth. It had continuance from what it was in the past, but yet it was destroyed. People take to a very common passage, Psalm 102. And in verse 25, it says, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And in verse 26 it says, Even they will perish, but you endure. And yet the second line says, And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed. It, the earth will be destroyed, but perhaps and this is where I'm leaning that the, it's the surface of the globe and the heavens will be changed massively. And we don't know exactly how it's going to be. Even reading into the, further into the text of Revelation chapter 21, we see that there are things that will be happening on the earth that have, cannot even be explained but how, G, how John was seeing them. The elements and the rocks, the stones, the pearls, the gold that is just transparent. We can't even imagine that or understand fully with our minds. But God can make it. God can make it even upon this globe. It would not be a problem. One thing I would say is this. Whether it will be fully destroyed and a new universe will be formed, 
or whether it will be this globe that will be transformed and just burned on the outside and massive change is going to happen, I will tell you one thing. There is continuation of things. There is continuity of things. Let me tell you this. The earth that is now the earth and the new earth, well, it's still going to be called earth. The heavens that was called heavens, the new heavens will still be called the new heavens. Jerusalem that has been there for centuries, the new Jerusalem will still be called Jerusalem's. And the nations, as we read in, we read in chapter 22, nations will still be nations. So there is a continuity of even nationality and culture in the new world, in the new earth, and the new heaven. As far as the extent of burning, you can continue to study that and let me know if you think any other ways. Um, let's take a look at this. Further, So the new heaven and the new earth will be made. Now this concept of the new heaven and the new earth, it was spoken of in the past. Even Isaiah was writing about that in chapter 65. However, when he writes about the new heavens and the new earth in the Old Testament, within the same context, he writes about this peaceful, joyful time upon this earth. And he says that there will be long, uh, prolonged longevity of life. People will live to over 100 years old. In fact, youth will be at the age of 100. And if someone dies, he dies, uh, he'll be considered a cursed man if he dies before the age of 100. And the question becomes, well, how do you reconcile? He, Isaiah uses the same terms, the new heavens, the new earth, and yet he speaks about the time where it will be, there will be death. It's clearly not the eternity. And the answer is this. Allow me to explain. Just like the Old Testament speaks of the Messiah and the redemption that is coming, there will be a redemption of the earth and redemption of people, their sins, that the people will be, sins will be forgiven. And this Messiah will come and create order. And yet the prophets who are looking ahead and they're expecting this Messiah to come. They cannot see the two comings of Jesus Christ. One being coming and dying for the sins of unbelievers. And then coming the second time in glory and ruling this earth. In a similar way, these prophets, when speaking about the new heavens and the new earth, they're not aware. They're not able to distinct, dis, make a distinction between the time of the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth and the eternal kingdom upon which all of the people of all times, all of the saints will be reigning with God and the Lamb. So speaking here, looking at our passage today, we have new heaven and the new earth speaking specifically about the eternal state in which we will be. What happens next is John is focusing on. He's zooming in onto this new earth and says this, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. New Jerusalem. Here John introduces to us the city. In the later passage, we skipped it between verses 
10 and all the way to the end of the chapter, he gives us a greater explanation in detail of what this new Jerusalem will look like. But given the details where precise measurements there are, we know that this city is not this la-la land in the spiritual form. It is a physical city that is measurable by human measurements. In fact, that's what it says that. 1,500 miles of one side of the city. If you can measure that, that will be covering an area of half of United States. The city that is going to be coming down. And this is what he's seeing. Half of the United States. And in fact, it's a three-dimensional city. How do you explain that? We don't know. But it is going to be massive. 1,500 in one side, the other side. And the height is 1,500 miles. This is about a square footage of about 2 million miles, squared miles. Or over 2 billion cubic miles in its entire measurement. So it is massive. But this, first of all, the city is explained to be holy city. Now, speaking of Jerusalem in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it has been called holy in the past. But it's for the first time, well, after the millennial kingdom, that it is called, it's living up to its name, holy city, where there will be no one who is unholy that can come into the city. We read in chapter 21, verse 8, but the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part is in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. If you look at verse 27, after describing the city, it says, and nothing unclean, and no one, in verse 27, who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Imagine, it truly will be a true holy city. There will be no sin. There will be no sinners in the city. And it is made like a bride adorned for her husband. Probably immediately rings your bell when you say, when you recall Jesus Christ sharing with his disciples who are worried that Jesus is going to leave them. And he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may also be. Jesus Christ left the earth and he has been preparing a place for us. It is this kingdom, it is this city, massive city, that will be upon the new heaven, coming from the new heaven onto the new earth. It is beautiful, it is a brilliant city, glorious. It says that it's carrying the glory of God. When John describes this, Later on, he sees this. It is just glowing. It is, um, you know, when he compares this to a bride, you may say, why is he compared to a bride? It's very, it was very common in the ancient, ancient times when the king would sit on the throne within his capital city for the city filled with its citizens to be called this king's bride. In the same way, 
this metaphor is used in order to describe the church and all of the believers for all of the time of history of humanity now being within the city where God and the lamb are on the throne and he gets to, and the city is called the bride of God. From the following passages, we, as I've mentioned that this city, it is huge, large, and it says it has a great and high wall. It has 12 gates and at every gate, there is an angel standing. The gates are identified according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And the wall has 12 foundation stones with the names of the 12 apostles. So you can see that there is this Jewish flavor to it. And there's this church flavor of the, of the 12 apostles. And it says the wall having 12 foundation stones with the names of 12 apostles. And the materials that are used are these we don't know exactly what they are because a lot of the words that are used today, they were just being transliterated. They weren't trans, um, translated. They were transliterated. So we don't know exactly what the substance, uh, substances were, but these are, appear to be very precious stones, very costly stones, just speaking of unimaginable richness of God's splendor. Imagine these gates, and it describes these massive gates. Massive gates that are just made every gate out of a solid pearl. Now, how do you explain that? You know, we'll look at pearls that are tiny, made in this shell, right? And th this is a single gate, a single uh, pearl. Um, and the city itself is made from pure gold, but it says pure as glass, so what type of element is being used? Is it the gold that we see today? Or is it, is it different gold that is just transparent to a degree? We don't really know. But what we do know that this actual literal city, its glory will far surpass the language that John uses to portray it. John's language is an attempt to describe what is one sense is indescribable. It says that there will be no sun or the moon because the glory of God will illumine the city. There will no need to be. There will be no night. And it says the lamp of the city will be the lamb. There will, we kind of skipped that, but it says that there will be no sea. And you may wonder, listen, how is it? There will be no sea, no ocean. Sea is... We all love to go to the sea, to the ocean, and observe it, right? On the beach. But it says that new earth will have no sea. And it's not that the sea is evil in itself. But there is an evil connotation associated with the sea. Even if you look at um, verse 13 from the previous chapter, it says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. The sea is sort of acts against the humanity. It destroys people many times. It sees what perhaps separated John from the churches that were located about 60 miles on the shore of Asia. But there will be no sea. God has designed it to be this way. And this new Jerusalem, it will be coming down out of heaven from God. 
And he repeats it twice. It is coming down of heaven, pointing to the very something very important. When we look at heaven and we, we know of heaven, we understand that that is where God lives. It is the habitat of where God lives. Isaiah 66 verse 1 says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And now what is happening here is that this heaven from the new heaven is coming down a glorious city, Jerusalem. What is happening here is this, the dwelling of God, um, the heaven and the new earth are connecting here. And this new Jerusalem serving as a bond between the two. Something that has never been experienced before. This takes us to the next aspect of our home. We looked at the dwelling place, but now let's take a look at the new relationship. It's this intimate physical communion with God like never before. Take a look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. If you look carefully, basically the same thing is repeated like four times in this one verse. Among them, among them, among them, right? And they shall be his people. This is, happens to be the pinnacle or the focus of the entire um, presentation that John gives that God himself will be among his people. Now, when we read about this, it's a, it's heard. John hears it with a loud voice, someone from the throne speaking, perhaps an angel making this important proclamation. The tabernacle of God is among men. We understand that the tabernacle is translated place of living. So God's living now is coming down upon the earth. Obviously, there is a comparison for the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle that was in the, in the desert. The tabernacle where there was a holy of holies. And the Shekinah glory was present within the tabernacle. And the Shekinah glory was then transferred into the temple. But now, this sort of Shekinah glory and the temple and the residence of God, it's going to be expanded onto the entire City of Jerusalem. Someone noticed a very interesting fact here. The Holy of Holies, whether it is, was in the tabernacle or within the temple, it was a perfect cube. It was a perfect cube. And guess what? This new Jerusalem, a massive city with a side of 1,500 miles, it is a perfect cube, just like the Holy of Holies. It's as if God's Resi uh, residence has been expanded, transferred onto this big city with all the people being there. So there is no now hindrance of sin. You don't need to have a priest now to come in once a year in order to bring the sacrifice for the entire nation to keep this communion sort of going in direct communion, not intimate communion, but it is more open now it is intimate it is available there for people of God to come to him remember from the past 
where in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were able to walk and have a conversation. It says that God walked within the garden in the cool of the day, and he had a conversation with man. After the sin, this was lost. He was not able to communicate so openly with man. He would speak to man very sparsely and indirectly without seeing him face to face. But there was a promise, nevertheless, from early on, even in Leviticus, exactly just that, where he says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. In Leviticus 26, I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. There was this promise from, of, from old. In Ezekiel chapter 37, after giving them the promise of the Holy Spirit, that I will give you the land and I'm going to give you a new covenant, right? To the nation of Israel. There was always a promise. And then now it says that uh, my dwelling place also will be with them, 37, 27. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. There was a promise for Israel. This promise we understand that has fulfilled in the millennial kingdom, at least to part. There was still a temple in the new millennium. Now in the eternal kingdom, there will be no temple. Look, in 21:22 in Revelation, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. This is a true union, true communion with all of the believers of all times now with the God of this universe. For the church, for the church, we will be with him from the first resurrection. Even from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 17, we will meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with him, with the Lord. But during the eternal state, upon the arrival of the new Jerusalem, all of the peoples, in fact, it changes to all of his peoples. We don't have that in NASB. 21.3, and they shall be his peoples in plural. That means the nations and Israel and the, all the nations of the redeemed will be with him. In verse, 20, verse 3 of chapter 22, they will see him face to face and his name will be on their foreheads. We will definitely see Jesus Christ face to face. As far as God the Father goes, we don't know. He's, he does not have the face of a human being. We will definitely see the glory. He is the God as the God is spirit, who is spirit. We will definitely see and have approach to him to a certain degree. As far as the face goes, it's, it is here that we will see him face to face. As far as what kind of face, we don't know. But definitely the people will carry the resemblance of God's possession. They will carry his name on their foreheads. And it will be given this world to everyone who says overcomes. Look with me in verse 7. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. You may say, well, who overcomes? If you read in the beginning of Revelation, to every of the seven churches, there is a message. And every message ends with this term, to him who overcomes, I will do this and this. 
there is a promise to everyone who overcomes. And John, who is the author of this letter, he also writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, which says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. To everyone who comes to God in Christ, by faith, overcomes. Overcomes. 1 John 5, 5 says, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. All the people throughout the universe, the history of humanity, those who have come to God through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, are those the overcomers who will receive this inheritance and this eternal home. I will jump forward to the last, to the last aspect of our home, and that is our experience. Our experience. Look at with me verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. It's interesting that God chooses to explain to us the life without the negative experiences. I like the way Robert Thomas says. He says, the negative description of future conditions in a sense is easier because finite humans accustomed only to an old earth ravaged by sin are void of experience in an ideal environment such as the new creation will be. It's just hard for us to grasp any earthly positive experience without the evil things just constantly present along with them. Think about it. Even the best things that we have on earth, they're always kind of marred, always attached to something that is evil, something that is sinful, something that is not perfect. But the first thing we say, see here is this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It just speaks of compassion of God. An extent of the compassion. He uses every tear in singular. Just speaks about how God is so compassionate that he cares even for the littlest, the smallest, minute things. He doesn't just treat us and will not treat us as a flock of dumb animals, right? Okay, come on in, you guys. No, he's going to take care of us individually, caring for every one of our pains or every concern that we have. There will be no longer any death. There will be no curse. All of the debts will be paid. All of the evil people will be in, the, in hell. Not in hell, but in the lake of fire, including Satan himself. All of the people here are the redeemed. There will be no death. No loved ones dying. Death will be foreign. Sickness will be foreign. We might need to be eating something from the tree of life for sustenance. In chapter 22, as we read. But there will no more be no more disease. No doctor's visits. No chemo or radiation treatments. No pain. No pain pills. No crying. No remorse. No guilt. No shame. No depression. We can only imagine living in a city with no crime. No riots. 
no garbage, no homelessness, no drugs, no billboards advertising sin. City that is designed personally by the best architect. One who created the entire world, he's gonna, he's preparing for us a city. We will have no blemish within, no sinful thoughts, complete joy in triune God, no jealousy, no bitterness, no selfishness, no laziness. We're going to be working and serving, managing, building, designing, planning, and just enjoying God and Savior in the midst of it all. Having approach to the throne of God and to the Lamb. Now, we the people, we always hunger for something that is better. And those of us who are redeemed with hunger for what? We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We do. And God is going to fulfill that. He will fulfill that. Look at with me in verse 6. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. This is what Jesus spoke when he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. There will no longer be this longing. There'll just be eating and enjoying of this fullness of the spiritual joy and satisfaction. There will be no thirst or no hunger. Everything will be spiritual and physical. It will be satisfied to the fullest without sin. And verse 5 says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. This is not a new year. <laughs> this is not a new president or a new political party. Right? It's not another term. or It is all new things. Joyful things. Enjoyable things. In the presence of God himself. John watching this revelation, the vision of glorious things to come, was just astonished. He was in awe, amazed, right? And here, probably an angel speaks to him as if waking him up. Hey, John, these, write these things. These words are faithful and true. Write them down. And verse 6, God, the Father, continues. He says, then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. What does that mean? Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. It is God, who, the Father, who continues, one who began all things. He is the one who is able to bring it to completion. None of us can do it. The Father, God can do this. The Son can do that. In fact, at the end of chapter 22, when Jesus speaks, he describes himself with the same terms. Behold, I'm coming quickly. In verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It just speaks about this triune God, how one they are. Whatever they have decided to do in the very beginning, to create 
and to redeem and bring to the full eternity and enjoyment, they will complete it to the very end. Just speaks about their faithfulness, dependability, speaks of their truth of what they say, ability to carry it all the way through, their trustworthiness. Praise be to our Father. Praise be to God who just loved us sinners and provided us a way of salvation who will bring us to our home, to this glorious place. And we Christians, in many ways, we have experienced it. We have experienced adoption. We have experienced communion with God. Even today, we have experienced it, but it is still veiled. It is still limited. Imagine, still hindered by sin, by our flesh. Imagine when we come to this presence of God, eternal kingdom, and have this all without any hindrances. In our home, as we said, it's not just our dwelling place. Home is a place of comfort, place of enjoyment. You may have traveled even to a five-star hotel somewhere in Mexico. But when you come home, it is home. That's when you put your comfortable clothes, you're met with your family members, you enjoy this time together with meals, right? You, you're comfortable, you feel safe there. It's a place of security, place of enjoyment. You can be there yourself. The heavenly home, the new earth and the new heaven, it is our home that we are to long for. You know, when my wife and I, the first two years we were living in Nevada, while I went to school there, and we knew we're moving back to Sacramento, California. And this life of just longing back to get home, we know that this is not our place. We would just sit and we would just talk. We would just dream, hey, when we're going to move, we're going to do this. We're going to buy that. We're going to gather with these people. Finally, we will meet our friends there and we will be with them and our family is going to be there. There's this longing and the things that we were doing there, we knew even the relationships, as healthy as they were, we knew that this is temporary. In a year or two max, they're going to be, we're going to be, we're going to depart. In the same way, we are to look forward to heaven. We are to make preparations for heaven because that is where our God is. And he's going to come and he's going to live among us. Richard Baxter once said this. If there be so certain and glorious a rest for Satan, why is there no more industrious seeking after it? One would think, if a man did but once hear of such unspeakable glory to be obtained and believed what he had heard to be true, he should be transported with vehemency of his desire after it. It should almost forget to eat and drink and should care for nothing else and speak of and inquire after nothing else but how to get this treasure. And yet people who hear of it daily and profess to believe it as a fundamental article of their faith, do as little minded or labor for it as if they had never heard of any such thing or did not believe one word they hear. It takes effort. It takes 
reminders for us. It takes to go back into the scripture and just remind yourself of the, your home, your destination, your citizenship. It's like receiving, knowing that you're going to move into a foreign country, receiving a, a castle there, a car, personal chauffeur, right? A job, a title, uh, everything ready there, and you just kind of waste your time here, never preparing, never learning the language of that nation. You're just kind of obsessed with things that are just so minor, never making preparations to move. In the same way, we kind of do this similarly. C.S. Lewis said, I must keep alive in myself the desire of my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. May God bless us as we ponder, as we meditate on our new home, this new glorious dwelling place with the new, just renewed relationship with God the Father and just having experiences that are, have never experienced before. May God bless us to seek that, long for it, and act upon it. God bless us in that. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your kindness and love toward us sinners. That you gave the most important thing, your son Jesus. And Jesus loved us so much that he gave his life. And then he left us and prepared a place for us that we will enjoy for eternity. Forever, we will be with you, enjoying your presence, rejoicing in you. Every need will be met. Every experience will be glorious. We long for it. We want it, Father. Help us to focus on it in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. And to respond.